Welcome to Season 2 of The Kingdom, a Saluna podcast. And we're back for The Kingdom podcast. Today we're going to be discussing why society should not turn a blind eye to the perils of data centers. We're going to explore solutions that can be used today to reduce the demand and the climate effect from data centers. And we'll also talk about what could be the future of the grid and the role of a new type of data center. I'm joined by my colleague, Philip Ung, Vice President of Corporate Development for Saluna. Hello. I'm John Belazier, your host. And today, our special guest is Professor Andrew Chen. Professor Chen is the William Eckhart Distinguished Service Professor at the University of Chicago, and he's also a senior scientist at Argonne National Lab. Welcome to the show, Professor Andrew. Thanks, John. Happy to be here. Andrew, we're going to start by having our guests get to know you a bit better. Have you always been a professor, or were you in industry before, or vice versa? Take us through the tour of your career. Gosh, um, I've been working in computing for something like 30 years. Um, you know, just a, a little tidbit. Actually, my, my PhD advisor was a fellow named Bill Daly, who now is uh, chief scientist at NVIDIA, so quite a distinguished computer architecture person, wow. researcher, leader. Um, and uh, I'd, I've done a bu- bunch of different things in my career. Um, I spent going on uh, more than 20 years as an academic at several places, uh, first at the University of Illinois, then at UC San Diego, uh, and now at the University of Chicago. But in the midst of all that, I had a couple of other interesting excursions, which show that I'm, I'm I actually like to get down and dirty with real technology and 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 uh, productization and industry. Hmm. Um, I spent four years uh, in a startup uh, that I uh, founded and created in San Diego, um, and then from 2005 to 2010, I was the Vice President and Head of Research for Intel um, on the computing side, not not at the device level. My, my, my portfolio was really computers, computer systems, data centers, all of that kind of stuff. So, mm. so I like to do fundamental technology, um, but I've always been interested in how academic you know, sort of research meets um, real practice uh, and uh, changes the arc of uh, society. Got it. Your younger self, were you sort of a, a tinkerer, would you say? Did you get like computer kits and put them together, things like that? Yeah, I, I was a tinkerer, not so much with computer stuff, actually. Um, I didn't really get very interested in computing uh, until I, I showed up at MIT as a young young man. I actually went to MIT with the unusual plan of becoming a, a medical doctor. Um, but uh, when I got there, um, uh, I had a uh, seminar uh, scheduled for my first semester there. Of all things, uh, it was to learn about glass blowing. Really? And uh, the yeah, and uh, the instructor uh, who was supposed to teach that class for some reason decided to take the semester off, so my, my seminar was canceled. And and uh, one of my uh, freshman friends um, told me that he had take, he dropped into this class uh, with this amazing instructor, a very very famous teacher at MIT named Jerry Sussman. Hmm. And uh, it was about you know programming uh, and learning how to use computers. And um, he, the, 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 my friend said to me. Well, I don't know what he's teaching, but he's so exciting. You just have to come. <laughs> so, so he dragged me along. And uh, as they say, the rest is history. I went down this trajectory and I became an electrical engineer and then a computer scientist. And here I am. Wow. That's amazing. So it's, it's just amazing how life has those 
interesting twist, doesn't it? Serendipity, yeah. Yes, exactly. Now at Intel, were you were you um I know you were on the on the computing side, were there was was there a specific product that your research group ultimately led or was involved in that, that we would know or the audience would know? Gosh, you know, we, we were uh, engaged in what you might call the purest research, right? Uh, that you would find in a big mm-hmm. corporation like that. Um, so my portfolio included um, what we call disruptive technology. So we were trying to anticipate radical new uses. And we actually anticipated a whole bunch of the mobile and smartphone and health applications uh, that are widespread today. Um, alas, Intel didn't wind up being the commercial leader in those spaces, though it did actually pioneer much of the research in that space. Um, and then the other side of what I did there was focused heavily. I mean, there's a whole variety of things, but the other side of what I focused on was uh, a series of efforts in large-scale computing, uh, both around high-performance high computing, um, connected to the things I do at Argon today, uh, but also um, what, what came to be known as cloud computing, right? Mm-hmm. Which was just emerging at the time. Very interesting. And so at some point in your career, you leave Intel and you make your way back to Chicago to return to research, or were you just taking a break? Walk us through that. Oh boy, there's a lot of funny stories about that. I mean, I think <laughs> Intel is a great company and I had a fantastic time there. And um, I can't imagine you know, being in a company that's more of a leadership company and being chartered to do more advanced forward-looking stuff. So mm-hmm. especially for someone like me who is a advanced research person at heart, uh, that was really wonderful. Um, so I had a great time there. But what I found after about uh, five years or so was that I, I missed two things. I missed one, working with students, uh, which is a super important part of being in the, the university for me. Right. Uh, and then the second thing um, that I that I found out um, perhaps very obvious uh, to, to most people who've worked in companies, is that um, at Intel, you had to feed a narrow set of business customers, right, with new technologies and new innovation. And if you created some fantastic new thing that was really good for, you know, a radically different industry like health or a radically different industry like like maybe cloud operators, right, um, that was nice, but not so impactful for the company, Right. Right. So one of the fun things about being in the university is that we really have a very open field for who we can impact positively. And and, and all of that is viewed as sort of positive impact. Um, so we have a, a lot of freedom to attack in almost any direction that we see opportunity. Um, and then, and I have one funny story about this, right? Which mm-hmm. I, which I have to tell, I always tell people this. Okay. So Intel is a very smart company, very sophisticated management and, and so on, right? It's reputation is really excellent. But at the time that I arrived, um, most of the people at my level, right, VP level, corporate VP level, um, well, you know, they're not the youngest people in the company, right? Right. Um, so, so you know, in the late uh, two, in the late two thousand or the aughts, um, a lot of stuff was happening uh, in in the computing industry. Yeah, Facebook had just been founded, right? The iPhone was taking off, right? Uh, Twitter, you know, all of these kinds of exciting things that we think of as fixtures today, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, um, some smart person in the company, I have no idea who it is, figured out, gee, you know, these old executives, they don't really know what's going on out there. Hmm. <laughs> so how do you, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not, like I said, in big fortune 50 companies, this is not right. a, a unique phenomenon. Right. So, um, but, but U- Intel's response was very clever. So Intel introduced something they called reverse mentoring. Hmm. And the idea was, they said, well, you know. 
what we should do is we should take these fresh college graduates we have and we should sign one of them to each of these executives and they should meet together for a week and they should just talk about what's going on in the world. Wow. Um, and uh, so this is, was super clever, right? So they set up this system and, and, and they uh, started all this reverse mentoring system. And of course, you know, I thought about it for a little while and I realized, you know, that's actually the magic of being a professor, right? So right. the great thing about being a professor is you get to work with all these young kids uh, you know, young graduate students, and they not only have this unvarnished kind of modern view of the world because they grew up in it, right? Right. They don't carry all of the prejudices and the, the baggage and the trauma of the past with them, so they really can see the future in an unrestricted kind of way. Yeah. And that's the wonderful part of being a professor and working with young people. That's a great perspective. You're right. You know, if you spend 25, 30 years, uh, you know, working your way up in a, in a, in a company. And the world is changing around you. Sometimes you're shielded from that change, and actually, you may not even be open to it. And the people around you might be reinforcing that, right? Because exactly. Yeah. They have the same experience. Yeah, that's yeah. A, that's a very good point. Okay, so you're back at University of Chicago. Is that where you go rejoin the university landscape? That's right. That's right. So, so I, I went to the University of Chicago, and um, I was convinced to go there because one, it's just a fantastic university, you know. Mm-hmm. unbelievably excellent and famous and all that kind of stuff. And and the other thing was that um, I was given this interesting proposition, which is that Chicago didn't have a large computer science department yet. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were chartered actually to radically expand the department. Mm. So to give you a sense, when I arrived there, uh, the department was somewhere between maybe 16, 17 faculty. And I think we, we are approaching um, – maybe 48 or something like that now. So wow. so we have grown dramatically in the, I guess I'm coming on the end of my ninth year now. So wow. um, it's been, been quite an exciting run and we have amazing faculty and the department has really come into its own, I would say. So that's been very fun. And is that because of some specific mandate that's at the University of Chicago to grow that? What's what's driving that change? Oh, you know, the favorite joke I like to, to, to say is, well, you know, these elite universities, they're a little bit conservative. You know, by the time I arrived to Chicago in 2010, they had decided that computer science was going to amount to something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this computing thing might, might amount to something. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, our, our other units in physical sciences, you know, they have physics, they have chemistry, you know, they have, uh, you know, geophysics you know these are fields that have been around for hundreds of years so you know computer science that's right there there isn't mathematics you know i mean these are not new fields right so computing is definitely the new kid on the block in that in that uh collection yeah now you told us a story once when we first met about a sabbatical you took that was driven by a a tour that you took of a colleague or a friend in, in the chicago area that had built some wind farms and that launched you into a, a whole interesting project. Could you take us through that? Gosh, well, it's not, it's not just anyone. I mean, so we have a famous uh, wind entrepreneur who's a UChicago alum and a beneficiary of the university. His name is Michael Polsky. And you probably know him. He runs a company called Invenergy, right? Yes. So uh, he's a, a brilliant man and a very successful entrepreneur. And um, I think one day he was giving a talk at the university and he pointed out that one of the growing challenges in the um, renewable energy industry um, is is curtailment, right? The, the problem that they're having with sometimes when the wind farms can generate electricity, they aren't being allowed to either bring that energy into the grid. Uh, and even when they are, 
they don't always get the prices that they would like. They sometimes get very low prices, sometimes significant negative prices. Um, so, so that caught my ear uh, and uh, set me to begin learning actually about this renewable transformation that was happening uh, to the power grid. Mm. I'm fascinated by an article you wrote called, What Does DDT and Data Centers Have in Common? I may be watching the title, but tell us about the essence of that and the project you're working on. That's a fun topic. So um, as, as you've heard, right, I've been involved in computing for over 30 years, computing research. And most of us, right, most of us love computing. I mean, computing adds so much to our lives, right? Yeah. You know, we can do podcasts, you know, we can, uh, you know, surf our feeds, we can find out what our friends are doing and, and, and so on, right? And then, of course, the big science side of it is we can do discovery, you know, uh, we can optimize delivery and make sure we get our e-commerce products in an instant, all that kind of stuff. Computing's all got all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, and one of the other roles that I serve in is I serve as the editor-in-chief of communications of the ACM, which is the flagship publication of the world's largest computing professional society, right? So we, we get this wonderful broad view of computing, and we're constantly talking about all of the wonderful things computing is doing in the world. And it, it is. It's an amazing amount of stuff. Um, but um, I got to, to worrying a few years ago about some of the negative environmental impacts of computing, uh, particularly around data centers and, and the climate uh, uh, change uh, that they're incurring because of their carbon you know, emissions, either embedded or, or operational. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, there's e-waste and there's other kinds of things that are concerns. And I began to talk to my colleagues about it. And they are all true believers. I mean, they're just like me. Many of them say, oh, computing is so wonderful. You know, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing we need to work on. Um, but, uh, but I came to realize, actually, that um, the better something is, the more valuable something is, the more powerfully good something is, the more it proliferates. Uh, and that proliferation actually eventually, for almost anything, begins to cause problems. Hmm. So, you know, so for example, right, uh, a lot of us drive cars uh, and move around and, and mobility is a great thing, right? Mobility has transformed society, allows us to have relationships, it allows us to do all kinds of things we, we couldn't do. On the other hand, we all recognize that cars have some negative impacts, right? That's right. Uh, there's pollution, there's, there's carbon emissions, there's, there's waste, there's accidents, you know, and all kinds of things, right? There's, there's roads everywhere, right? You know, right. Um, so, so, so the, the, and then, then of course, nobody would say that we shouldn't work to make cars say more, more uh, efficient, better gas mileage to reduce the amount of emissions that they're creating, right? So there's good, but you should also work to minimize the negative impacts. So I started to think about, you know, how do we convince the computing community that um, we need to think about the negative impacts of computing? It's, it's not enough to say that, well, computing enables me to optimize logistics so there's fewer trucks driving around, right? Mm-hmm. But in fact, you need to say, despite that, right, I need to minimize the negative impacts of that computing, even though it's doing good, uh, uh, you know, those computations are serving some useful purpose. So, so to dramatize that, um, I came up with this example, you know, what do DDT, mm-hmm. right, this pesticide that was invented, uh, and computing have in common. And the idea was to sort of capture people's attention, particularly in the U.S., but around the world. Um, DDT is the um, the signature 
catalysts for the environmental community, right? I mean, DDT, Rachel Carson, Silent Spring really motivated, you know, the whole environmental movement in the United States for sure. Uh, and in many places around the world, right? But, but people forget, right? DDT, which had these negative impacts on, on uh, avia, avian life cycles and persistence in the environment and so on, uh, was also a wonder chemical for, you know, reducing pests, increasing crop yields, um, reducing malaria, all of these kinds of things, right? So the, if you ask the, the chemists, if you will, or the pesticide specialists, they would have said, no, 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 DDT is such a wonderful thing, right? right. Uh, but it has negative impacts. So, you know, um, it's important for all of these, uh, you know, phenomena, right? Um, chemical or in this case, computing. Um, to really, um, sure, we want to maximize the good, but we also want to work. It's valuable to work to minimize the negative impacts because the more good there is, the more use there is. Uh, and therefore, whatever negative impacts there are get magnified. So that was that, that article I wrote. It, the intent was to really dramatize this, this duality of almost everything that we have in the world and the need to work on the negative impacts of, of computing. And Andrew, what... What about these externalities, these extra costs that we don't think of? What grasps you? What, you know, what really drives you? Is it just a desire to, you know, to leave a positive legacy or is it something else in your past that's sort of formed that motivation? Well, I think, you know, you can't be, you know, the vice president, a vice president at a multinational corporation without being forced to think big. Right, you sort of get paid to to think not about little problems but about big problems. So, right, that's the job. So, one of the habits one of the habits inculcated in me is to think about what is the macroscopic impact uh, of these trends uh, and to think about that big picture. Um, so, so thinking about the interplay of of things like Jevons paradox, right, uh, which is you know the cheaper, the more efficient you make something, uh, the more people use it, mm-hmm. which drives the rapid growth of computing. Um, to, to thinking about, you know, Moore's law and uh, Denard scaling, which, you know, make computing more and more capable in, 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 in more and more settings that drive the, the growth of computing. Um, you know, you begin to think about things like, well, where does that all end? Right. I mean, you know, uh, uh, I gave a talk when I was a, a VP of research at Intel and the question was, OK, uh, people in the developed world have one, maybe one and a half computers today. How many are they going to have in 10 years? The answer was, well, I don't know, 15 or 20. How many are they going to have in another 10 years? Oh, well, I don't know, maybe 50, maybe. Yeah. I really believe that in the developed world that you'll be responsible. You, John, and you, Philip, will be responsible for several hundred computers, right, hmm. uh, within your lifetimes, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you begin to think about that kind of penetration of society and that kind of scale of use. And you say, well, okay, um, what impact is that going to have on the larger environment, the larger ecosystem. And of course, you know, we're also very worried about social impacts of of computing these days, right? People worry about internet addiction and all kinds of things. So so there are a lot of macro trends that come out of this. Um, Because I spend most of my time thinking about large-scale systems, um, I, of course, gravitated to um, thinking about the impact of cloud computing and cloud computing really being um, the consolidation of enterprise and, you know, internet computing uh, sort of all around the world. And boy, ever since, uh, you know, public clouds got started right in the late 2000s, um, 
the growth of those clouds has been extraordinarily rapid, right? And seems to be part, you know, headed towards um, almost unimaginable growth in scale. How do you characterize the negative effect of that limitless growth for our users? How would you, how would you characterize it? Maybe they don't realize. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, one of the beauties of the cloud is it's sort of invisible, right? That's why we call it the cloud. Right. Um, so, you know, it's not in your backyard um, and uh, and you don't see it. So the, the, the growth of cloud computing has really been extraordinary and fast. Um, um, you know, it's a little less 10 years ago. Um, I would say well below 10% of all of the servers um, that people shipped, you know, companies like Intel and IBM and others. Um, went to cloud computing companies. Um, good numbers are hard to get today, but it wouldn't surprise me if the number is somewhere between a third, approaching a half of all servers are shipped to the cloud. Mm. So that means something like you know fifty percent of all large scale computing is being done by those companies, right? Right. Um, and uh, um, if you look at the 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 numbers of of growth, there's good scientific studies that have been done of the electric power that's being consumed by these cloud computing companies. Um, there is rock solid data that for um, say the three years from 2015 to 2018, that the compound annual growth rate of those very, very large centers already that their power consumption, right. Was growing uh, at 30 over 30% a year. Hmm. Now, you know, they're very efficient, these companies. So their computing power is growing much, much faster than that. Right. 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 You know, maybe maybe a hundred percent a year or something like that. But there's but but nonetheless, right? There's limits to those efficiencies, and their actual power consumption is growing at at thirty percent a year. Now, most people believe that rate has accelerated um, because around 2017, 2018, we were starting to see the impacts of um, large scale machine learning. Mm. Right. So we all know machine learning is being applied in science, in commerce, across many aspects of society. And it turns out machine learning is an extraordinarily good way for a few people to consume massive amounts of computing, right? right? Um, you or I can, can churn mm -hmm. petaflops of computing, right? With just a few lines of a script uh, mm -hmm. to, to do machine learning. And, and that's very powerful. That's why machine learning is so powerful. But it means that the computing requirements for 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 that kind of an approach to building function and building software and building applications um, is accelerating the growth uh, of these cloud computing companies um, so if you know accelerate that by a few points maybe you get the 40 percent compounds annual growth per year um, you're getting into very very rapid growth that's like doubling every two two and a half years right right um, the 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 projections for this are really really very worrisome. Um, you know, I don't know how much you can, how much confidence you can place in a 10-year projection ever, right? But a 10-year projection for exponentials is also very difficult. But if you look at those kinds of projections, you know, you're looking at numbers where cloud computing could account for 10 to maybe as much as 15% of the world's power consumption um, by 2030. So, so it's a very, very significant hmm. amount of power. It's already somewhere in the 3 to 5% range right now. Amazing. Thank you. That was very helpful. The question I have is, you know, at some point you took a sabbatical and you went to study this energy problem. And when you came back from that sabbatical, I may overcharacterize it, but it sounds like you got an epiphany where these two problems sort of intersected in some way. 
Just tell us about that. Yeah, I would certainly describe it as an epiphany, but um, I've, it actually happened in a slightly different order. So um, sometime around 2014, 2015, you know, we came across Michael Polsky, as I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and we started thinking about this, this question. Well, is there anything that, that we could do about that, right? Could we simultaneously um, help solve this problem for promoting renewable energy? Um, and do something about this growth of power consumption from data centers and, and power grids. And so I began to, to study power markets, right? Because it's not so simple as just the technology aspects, right? right the, the, the economists have taken over, right? How power right. is managed in the U.S. and around the world. Um, and uh, uh, so there were those two trends. And there was a third trend that I was very uh, intimately familiar with, which was um, this ending of Denard scaling and ending of Moore's law, that is that computing progress has begun to slow, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because of more difficulty in, 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 in feature scaling and so on. So um, what we figured out is that maybe it was possible to put these three things together uh, and um, create this idea called the dispatchable data center, which a dispatchable is a term used in the power grid, right? To decide mm-hmm when or when not uh, uh, a generator generates power or a load uh, consumes power. Uh, and we began to explore, well, maybe uh, if we had a dispatchable data center, we could actually accelerate uh, renewable integration, that is the absorption of renewables into the power grid, helping with this climate problem. Um, and uh, uh, maybe um, because Moore's law was slowing down, that we could figure out how to make the economics work uh, to um, make it feasible to actually uh, have a dispatchable data center. That is a data center that you don't operate 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. And the union of all three of those ideas is something called zero carbon cloud. Um, and we published some initial papers around that in 2014 and 2015. Um, and, and then what happened is that um, as we did more and more of the research on it, we could get access to plenty of the computing side information that we needed, the design of data centers, the trends of semiconductors, performance of servers, and so on. But we, what we had a lot of trouble with was um, getting uh, enough power market data to really understand the behavior of these markets and to do good modeling of whether you know, we could actually help solve these problems. So I had a sabbatical coming up, and I, I went around and talking to several of the leading power grid uh, operators uh, in the United States um, that were the most progressive in terms of adopting renewables. So um, in uh, Texas, uh, there's a, an outfit called ERCOT, uh, Electric Reliability Council of Texas, that runs a very, very large power grid that has a lot of wind power in it, and now a growing part of a uh, bit of solar energy. Uh, and then uh, the Cal ISO, or California ISO, um, which has a huge amount of solar generation in the state of California. Interestingly, these two power grid companies were the most innovative, largely because they were all contained within a single state and therefore not subject you know, to federal approval for lots of the innovative things that they were doing. So they were able to experiment quite a bit more. And um, you know, that combined with their big pushes into renewables um, had actually um, begun to see the kinds of problems that we were talking about for um, uh, failure to absorb or inability to absorb renewable generation, what we call stranded power. Right. So I went around and I, I talked to um, these 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 uh, power grid companies and, and I said, well, I have a I have a sabbatical coming up. You know, could I perhaps embed myself inside your 
your organization so I could get access to this data about markets and behavior and dynamics uh, and write some studies of that, uh, which um, I wouldn't be able to do if I wasn't uh, an insider, if you will, right. in those organizations. Um, so long story short, um, that allowed me to be introduced to a lot of uh, really terrific people who are trying to solve this problem from the power grid side um, in Texas and in uh, California. And I wound up spending a year at the California ISO when we wrote some nice reports about the rapid growth of stranded power uh, in California. Uh, and uh, in California, stranded power has been growing at 35 to 40% a year as documented in that report. And um, you know we're, we're, we're really at the tipping point where we're starting to see days several times a year where the solar generation in the state actually exceeds the total demand in the state. Mm. Um, and uh, that means that at that point, right, unless you can do something very expensive with that electricity, like like put it in a battery, that's a very expensive proposition. Right. Um, you really can't save it. And uh, California is just in the beginning of this. You know, there's huge mandates for more and more solar in California. So, so California, I think, is at uh, 30 plus percent uh, RPS today. And uh, they're going to, to 50 and, and way beyond. So, hmm. um, so they've got this problem in spades today. Uh, and we just completed a report analyzing ERCOT's stranded power. And ERCOT's pretty interesting uh, because they had massive stranded power, this you know, excess renewable energy, um, in the early part of the 2010s um, in West Texas. Uh, and then they added um, a lot of transmission. They put up something called CREZ, C-R-E-Z, um, and their stranded power went down for a couple of years. But um, with the continued growth of renewable energy, it's gone way back up again. And in the last three years, it's an equal fraction of the wind generation in the state that it was in the early 2010s. Uh, and that fraction is actually somewhere between 15 and 30%, depending on, on how you want to set the threshold for power that's, you know, so cheap that you could use it for all kinds of, um, you know, green data center kinds of purposes, right? And Andrew, would you say that a lot of this is really just a technology problem where uh, it's really about, you know, electrification and turning, getting the battery technology right so we can store this energy? Or what makes you feel that computing is potentially a better solution for this than um, some of the more, I would say, I guess, conventional approaches to solving this problem? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, when we first learned about this notion that power was being sold at, at well, first being curtailed or, or sold at negative price, you know, the first question I asked was, yeah, is this just a transient, right? Is this just something that's a problem now is going to go away? Uh, or is it something that's likely to continue, right? Um Right, because no one wants to do research on problems that are well don't exist anymore. Right, we want to work on fundamental problems. Yeah, and uh, so we spent about two years trying to decide uh, if this is a fundamental problem, and uh, we concluded that it is. So, so why is it fundamental? Well, it turns out um, that um, if you have a, a power grid, what you have is a bunch of statistical generators. Right, so sometimes the wind blows, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes the sun shines, sometimes it doesn't. Right. Wind is a little more statistical than, than solar, right? Um, and um, as you shift more and more of your generation to these statistical generators, 
um, you run into the problem that in order to, on average, have enough power, you have to have more and more over capacity, right? So a, a typical wind turbine generates about 30% of what's called its nameplate capacity, right? So if I buy a, say, three megawatt wind turbine, um, it generates on average one megawatt over the course of the year, right? Sometimes it generates three, sometimes it generates zero, sometimes it generates one and a half, right? So trying to make a reliable grid out of all of these things at the same, you know, uh, that are fluctuating like this is a statistical game, right? Right. So, so what you wind up doing is you wind up buying more and more of that capacity, uh, which means that when you get lucky, if you will, right, and the wind blows everywhere, you have this massive overgeneration, right? Um, so if you think about it, if we had all of the power in a grid that came from wind generators and they were sort of truly independent statistical generators and they generated at this average 30% uh, 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 factor, then you'd have as much as three times the amount of energy that you needed, right? at some points during the year when all of the wind was generating, right? So so you have the other problem, which is, of course, sometimes you don't have enough. So we have all kinds of other generation to fill with those kinds of problems. But the problem that's fundamental is that you're going to have this overcapacity sometime uh, uh, is, is, is there. So, so that sort of is a simplistic argument, but there's actually a more, more sophisticated argument, which is, is if you look at the statistical variation of the ensemble of these generators, um, you can think of it as a distribution, right? So, you know, think of a typical Gaussian distribution. You got kind of a nice high peak in the middle, and then you have this long tail out to the two sides, right? Um, and as you go out to the tail, it gets lower and lower and lower, right? Mm -hmm. So you can think of that as those are the days when there's a lot of wind blowing, right? And we don't have enough load to soak it up. At some point, there's a cutoff, right? Mm -hmm. um, so if I start to solve that problem, by buying energy storage, right? Mm -hmm. um, maybe it makes economic sense to buy it for the first sigma or the second sigma even, right? Um, but the problem is that every sigma I go out, the less and less I use that storage, right? Mm -hmm. So it becomes more and more uneconomic the further I go. So I'm quite confident that given this kind of statistical distribution, it will never make sense to buy enough storage to soak up all of this you know, excess renewable energy. It's just too rare, right? Um, and in fact, you know, what people are actually seeing today is that even today, even if it's not rare, it's not economic to buy storage to soak up most of this stuff, mm. right? So, so it's, um, but I believe that because of that statistical distribution, right, it's always, there's always going to be stranded power. And every evidence is that it's going to continue to grow as we have a higher and higher reliance on these renewable sources. Mm. So let me play that back, see if I followed that, Andrew. So the first point is, as you start to add renewable energy and you increase the, the, the penetration because of the statistical variance, let's say wind, for example, the more you add, the more variance you get and the more you need to add to sort of balance the fact that you get these wide swings. So that makes it a systemic issue. And the second is, let's say you could build some sort of sink, like a giant battery to absorb this stuff that still doesn't work because what what reason because it there there are cases where basically it's swung so so wide that there's the battery is full gosh um it from a technological point you could buy enough batteries to make it work 
But what I was learned from my economist friends is the power grid is ruled by businesses and economists, yeah. right? So it's, it's a, there is a technological requirement. It's not just a technology problem. But, <laughs> but in the end, it's an investment problem, right? Yeah, exactly. So, right. so the way to think about it is that if I built a battery that was large enough to deal with the worst case, right, uh, for when yeah. wind right. doesn't blow, it would have to be very, very large. Okay, we can understand that. Mm-hmm. Now you look at how often do I use each increment of that battery? So maybe the first increment of that battery uh, of 10 increments, I use very often, like every day, right? Mm -hmm. Second increment, maybe I use it, you know, twice a week. And then you go all the way down. When you get down to the 10th increment, you know, you've got like a 50-year, you know, what they call like, you know, something that happens, a 50-year event, right? So I would never use that 10th increment of the battery except once in 50 years. Well, nobody's going to pay for that, right? Got it. Nobody's going to pay for having that thing, right? Right. So, it, because there's no way to make a return on it, right? So, mm-hmm. so the point is that that this distribution, which by the way gets wider and wider and more spread as you add more and more variable renewable generation into it, is getting economic return based on that variance and spread. And when it gets large, you know, when you get far from the mean, it just doesn't pay to deploy that storage. Now, now there's a similar story. You know, I don't. We shouldn't have such a long discussion about it. But the other way to solve this problem is with more transmission, right? Right. But transmission has the same economic problem, right? So you make a big investment in the transmission and you'll probably you'll, you'll probably use it a lot for certain scenarios, you know, medium amount for another scenarios. And then there's these scenarios where you'll probably never use the line, like you'll never be. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know. Sending power on. So that's right. who's going to build that line? Right? That's right. So you think about transmission lines as balancing imbalance mm-hmm. at the two ends of the line, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, how frequent do you have that extreme and imbalance, right? That determines, you know, whether or not it's worth building that capacity, right? Right. That determines how big the line is going to be, but you don't use that, that amount of capacity enough times for it to justify the investment. And that's where the economists are like, that doesn't make sense. Exactly. And the, and the business, you know, the business folks, they're very good at figuring this out, right? You know, because that's their (laughs) bread and butter. Yeah. I have great respect for them. Right. So. Right. Right. Andrew, why is that not true for the n plus one number of computing units that you add, where you're you're also going to get a declining marginal utility of that asset? Ah, so so now we're diving into this question of, okay, um, if we use um, data centers to help solve this problem, how are we how are we helping? Right? Yeah. Um, so so how how do they help? Well, first. You know, as we talked about, the power consumption of data centers, you know, is is large and growing, right? So it's a pretty significant amount, but it's not the whole power grid, right? And it probably mm-hmm. will never be the whole power grid. Uh, one of the things I learned when I spent a year at CalISO uh, was they're very worried about this problem, and um, they are looking for all kinds of adaptive load, what they call adaptive load, right? Because you know, in some ideal sense, the only way to solve this problem is to have the load ultimately conform to the supply that's available, right? Right. And it's not just the supply that's available, it's when it's available, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, uh, the degree to which you can deviate from that, you have to make up for with energy storage or you have to make up for with with variable, you know, controllable dispatchable generation. Mm-hmm. So um, it turns out that data centers fit into um, the category of adaptive load. And the question is, can I be, um, uh, enough of an adaptive load to make a difference for the power grid, right? And obviously, the bigger the total 
uh, data center consumption is, right, the more chance it has to make a difference, right? Right. Um, so, so, so we've done studies that look at temporal load shifting within a day, and we have an upcoming paper that's going to be published in the Jewel Journal that looks at regional load shifting across um, the uh, PJM power grid, the East Coast power grid, and the West Coast power grid, Cal ISO in the United States. Uh, and um, and these uh, these uh, uh, models all show that you can get benefit um, in, that is reduced carbon footprint by doing these things. Um, the basic reason that these kinds of things are possible is that while data centers uh, like to talk about the fact that they're on 100% of the time and they're busy all the time, in fact, they're actually not uh, busy all the time. So there actually is inside of most data centers some excess capacity at certain times of day and some fluctuation in load. So if you're able to take advantage of that already today, um, you can do some load shifting uh, from a, say, a high carbon time of day in a power grid to another power grid, which is a low carbon time of day, uh, and thereby reduce uh, uh, the carbon footprint of, of the computing. Or um, if you can't get enough benefit that way in terms of reduced carbon, you can take an even more radical view, which was the original proposal we had for zero carbon cloud. Hmm which is to have an entire data center that's sitting there idle, right? Right. That you power up and use when you have this excess renewable energy uh, available. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, the challenge, of course, uh, for that is a little bit like uh, we were just talking about. It's the economic challenge, right? Right. It's can you afford to have a data center uh, sit idle? Um, and then you might ask good questions like, well, how much is it idle exactly? Right? Is it idle 1% of the time, 10% of the time, 99% of the time, whatever. So we actually did studies of that. Um, and um, one of the interesting things that you find when you do that is that, in fact, um, in many of these power grids, there are surprisingly long periods of time when you can have negative price power, curtailed power, uh, and uh, you know what we call stranded power. In fact, we documented that in the mid-continent ISO, there are particular locations in the grid where you could have a 70, 80, 85% duty factor. That is 85% of the hours in a year, this stranded power is available. Um, and if you're willing to pay a little bit of money for it, like not zero, right, then you can drive that, that duty factor up. Uh, and, uh, and now, you know, there are some companies that are exploiting uh, these kinds of properties and building data centers that actually come available only when such power is is available uh, and that allows them to you know provide service at extraordinarily low costs uh, because their electricity is so cheap now there's one more trick to that um, that i think the traditional data center folks didn't recognize and why they thought this could never work um, the other trick to that is um, that there is a cost spiral around high reliability so you know data centers today you know traditional cloud or Enterprise data centers, they try to achieve perhaps as much as five or six nines of reliability, right? right. That means that they only go out 0.0001% of the time or something like that, right? Right. That's exceedingly good, exceedingly high reliable. And if you, and if you want to do that, what you do is you put in redundant power hookups, redundant converters, redundant power distribution, redundant power supplies, redundant, you know, all this stuff, right? Right. Um, and, right. uh, and, and that redundancy implies cost, right? That's right. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. 
which makes it a very expensive uh, facility to build. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So as soon as you crack that open and you say, well, you know, I'm not trying to be five nines. even one nine of reliable, right. right? I'm trying to get, you know, to one nine. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden you can downscale all of that, right? right? Uh, and dramatically reduce that cost. So that means that maybe you could afford to operate that data center at a lower duty factor, right? Provided your applications allow it. I mean, I don't want this to be done with the system that's monitoring my heart surgery, right? I mean, you know, there are things you don't want to have, you know, yeah. supported by these kinds of data centers. But right. it turns out that there's actually a lot of things that you can do in this kind of, uh, you know, wait in line and when the system is running can consume that computing kind of mode. Did you study some of those and and, and maybe even model some of that? Some of the applications, some of the applications. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the easy thing for us to study was, um, as I said, I spent some time at Argonne National Labs, and Argonne National Labs is one of the world leaders in high-performance scientific computing. Right. Uh, and they they do all kinds of scientific modeling and engineering modeling. Those kinds of modeling computations can be done perfectly well in what's called a batch computing kind of mode on these kinds of uh, irregularly available kinds of uh, uh, resources. Mm-hmm. And we were able to show that that resources that were powered by this stranded power could give users the same statistical quality of service. Hmm. That is the same average wait time, the same uh, variation of wait time and, and, and same you know, time to results uh, as conventional systems. So there is no statistical difference in that quality of service. So that's one kind of workload. But the other kind of workload that is emerging that also turns out to be obviously a target for this is again, machine learning, uh, DNN training, hmm. uh, deep learning model training, mm-hmm is a batch process and it's extraordinarily compute intensive. And um, there's no particular reason why it has to be done either continuously in time or this minute, right? Right. Um, In fact, much of the machine learning training that's going on is what we would call model refinement. Hmm. That is, I've got a recommender system that tells your e-commerce site what the next product you're likely to buy is, right? So there's a system up and it recommends today, but they want to make a better one and they want to deploy that next week. Right. right, because it's going to cost you to buy 0.01 more per- percent more stuff, which <laughs> right. is the big deal to them, right? Or maybe yeah. it's 0.1%. I don't mean to, to yeah. diss them, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's, but it's the big deal in aggregate, right? Mm-hmm. But the point is, they've got the old model. If their new model was delayed by one day, it would cost them something, but mm. it's not really you know, a fundamental problem, right? Mm. Um, so, so there's all kinds of retraining like that and iterative refinement like that, which can be deferred or done flexibly. And particularly if you could do it cheaper. So if you went to one of those big e-commerce companies and you said, yeah, you know, 1% of the time we're going to be late by one day. So eight days instead of seven. But, you know, I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to do your training for 90% of the cost. I think most of them would take that deal, right? Absolutely. So so there is the benefits, right? And of course, Mm -hmm. you know, not only just lower cost, maybe there's no carbon footprint, right? That would be wonderful, Right. right? No, this is great. I have another question for you that is more about illuminating the the, the reality of, of what people say about renewables and data centers, right? You've got the big hyperscalers that are building, you know, the majority of the cloud infrastructure out there. Uh, we won't name names, but they say that they're 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 green. They're building these green data centers. They're you know they're they're building wind farms. Doesn't that sort of address the you know, the existential issue around the rapid growth of these things that they're deploying new green power. 
Gosh. Um, or what's the reality then? Is, it, is that sort of well? No. What what I would say is that um, I'm actually pretty proud in some ways of what the computing industry and what the cloud computing industry has done because I think that there's um, been a long time an interest in trying to reduce uh, the environmental impacts of their operations. I'm talking about these large companies, right? Not necessarily mm-hmm. the individual computer scientists, right. um, but, but it's hard uh, and it's expensive, right? Mm. Um, so what you see a lot of today is what we'll call carbon offsets, right? Right. So people are um, saying that, um, yes, I'm going to sign a purchase agreement with a wind farm and I'm going to conceptually at least consume power from this wind farm mm. by this data center. Right. And um, a number of companies are fully offset using that kind of model. That is, they bought as much power from these renewable sources as they consumed in their data centers. Mm. Uh, but about um, a year and a half ago, almost two years ago now, uh, one of these companies actually published a report. I think it was Google that pointed out that while they were fully offset, um, in fact, when the wind farm wasn't generating electricity, they were still running their data center. Mm. So if you wanted to have a fairer accounting, right, you had to fess up to the fact that, you know, you were causing a natural gas plant to run, a coal plant to run, uh, whatever, you know, resource there was. So so there are a few data centers, right, that are truly 7 by 24 matched, and therefore you could argue their power has no carbon content. Uh, but the vast majority of them, right, that are offset in this way are not actually zero carbon operations data centers. Um, so I think mm. that there's a challenge, right, mm-hmm. to get to this, uh, what, what, what they called 7 by 24 matching. And um, suffice it to say that some of the largest providers are not there today. And it, even, uh, you know, uh, amongst the top, say, four or five cloud companies, right, uh, maybe there's six or seven worldwide, none of them are anywhere close to 7 by 24 matching today. Mm-hmm. So while I would applaud their efforts and their commitment and their you know, uh, outspoken leadership uh, in some cases. Uh, um, I think they all recognize there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and all of this is hard in the face of their rapid growth, right? Right. Um, it's not even a static problem. It's a growing problem, right? Yeah, it's like an innovator's dilemma, right? You're you're so focused on innovating to maintain your business position. It's hard to destroy your business to some extent uh, in what you need to do. Yeah, so let me let, let me just say one more thing on that front. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that one of the things that's important that is happening and definitely needs to happen is that governments need to take a role in this, right? So I hear all the time from my colleagues in these cloud companies things like, well, we'd like to do that, but we just can't afford to, right? And oh, what man. do they mean by that? I mean, they have billions of dollars. It's not yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> they don't have enough money. <laughs> right. but, but no, but what they mean is that they think they have to be cost competitive. And if they undertake this as a mm. competitive posture, which is a disadvantageous, mm. um, that they will, you know, lose market share, uh, lose uh, pricing advantage relative to their competitors. So what we need to do is we need to have governments put in policies that level that playing field, mm. that require everyone, right, to take these I steps think, towards true zero carbon operation. Okay. Uh, and then, honestly, it's a small fraction of the. The, the turnover and the cost structures of these companies. So it won't make, uh, you know, a huge difference in how much we pay for cloud computing services. Um, but um, they have the scale and the technology and the ability to actually deploy these things. 
Um, and so I think it's within reach that, you know, by, by 2030, we could have a truly zero carbon cloud at some delta in cost, which I believe will be quite small. Mm, fascinating. That actually um, leads me to a question I wanted to ask you. You know, we, we, we're, we're recording this during uh, a pandemic, and unfortunately, in the United States, we're sort of the poster child for for botching up the, <laughs> the response to it. But it's it seems to be creating this global awakening and focus around climate change and renewable energy investment. You know, we've seen big announcements come out of Europe, and and now one of the candidates for president uh, has announced a big plan. What's your what's your take on what that could do for all of this? Well, I think that. Um you know, we've seen growing activism, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Greta Thunberg has been a terrific catalyst yeah. for just just forcing people to take responsibility um, for for what's happening, uh, even though it's not their day job, it's not a comfortable thing, and so on. And uh, you know, we've seen consistent activism from from countries that are you know experiencing massive you know kind of devastation because of sea level rise and various kinds of climate change. And, uh, you know, we, we, we see in the United States, I think, the growing awareness um, that uh, uh, these, these kinds of climate effects are affecting us, even if you don't live on an ocean shore or what have you, right? We've seen increased, you know, downpours and extreme weather events and all kinds of things. So um, I think most people uh, have come to terms with the fact that something real and substantial is happening and that we need to, to take action on it. Um, so I find that 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 super encouraging. Mm. Um, I, I I think that um, as I said, uh, you know, these cloud companies have been been leaders. I think the computing community, in general, the research community is starting to come around. We're beginning to see some of the cloud companies deploy some of these ideas, initial ideas, as pilots for how to do load shifting during the day to try and reduce carbon carbon footprint, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, um, you know, we're working with a number of them to try and develop uh, uh, options to uh, to uh, do regional shifting and the more aggressive zero carbon cloud techniques. Um, obviously, you know, Saluna and several other startups are trying to create uh, new services, right, that will be competitive and pull the cloud companies, the large cloud companies, right, in that direction uh, because um, the cost-effective green services that you'll be able to provide um, – will be attractive to customers, right? So there'll be markets, you know, that can drive this. So I, I'm optimistic that that we're beginning to see significant movement in that direction. And that movement is, rather than being framed as um, fighting the economics, that, you know, I'm optimistic that it can be aligned with positive economics for the parties uh, involved um, as the costs of climate change are beginning to be realized, right? Yeah. There were some major statements made by the chairman of one of the big hedge funds. I think it was BlackRock or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that caused earth, 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 an earthquake in the financial community, which basically said that they were going to reevaluate all their portfolio of investments on the basis of climate risk and climate impact, right? Yeah. That, was um, pretty that gets people's attention, you know, it that does. gets people's attention. It does. Yeah. But, but, you know, I, I think that this, this is a hard, uh, thing for the computing community to, to make progress on. And, you know, this whole space that we're talking about and that you guys think about um, is complicated. So, you know, at UChicago, I've been fortunate because I work with, you know, John Burge, who's a power markets expert in the Booth School of Business. And then I work with um, 
uh, Victor Zavala, right, who used to be at Argonne, and now he's at the University of Wisconsin, and he's a power grid and optimization expert. We have geophysics experts and, and so on. And, uh, you know, it really does take uh, thinking across all of those different sort of technologies and technical expertises and so on. Uh, I bring computing and data centers, of course, right, um, to even formulate, you know, these kinds of solutions and ideas. Um, so we need more people that are cross-trained and working in communities across that to solve the very, very complex problems um, that are required to design, you know, this hopefully very green, uh, not so warm climate future that we're going into, right? Yeah. Well, Andrew, this has been a fantastic, wonderful tour of your background and your entree into helping to solve these big challenges that we have with some very innovative and insightful approaches. I didn't get to ask you what it was like hanging out in California and Texas. I mean, did you just sort of like hang out in the control room and watch the graphs or did you <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. You just look at a bunch of uh, volumes of data. That no, 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 no. So those control rooms are secure facilities, right? Yeah. Um, no way you're going in there. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, they're, they're very concerned about, you know, all of the problems you have in a critical infrastructure yeah. and so on. So right, right. Um, I can say I did see the insides hmm. of those control rooms, but I cannot say that I would hang out in this, right? I mean, it was kind of like, <laughs> here it is. You can see it. Bye. You know? Bye. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. But, um, but I did want to say one other thing, right, if mm -hmm. I could, um, about uh, 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 this whole space that we're working in and the zero carbon cloud idea. Um, I had the following fun experience. So uh, when I started into this uh, area, um, my, my daughters uh, were in high school. Mm. And uh, they knew that I was a professor in computer science. And uh, when uh, I started bringing home, you know, pictures of wind turbines and plots of market prices and power and all this kind of stuff, um, it took them about two weeks to, to realize, hey, wait a minute, this is different. And they said, um, what what are you doing, Dad? I thought you were a computer person, right? Mm. So so I had this interesting experience of, of, of shifting into a new area and, and having to learn new things. Um, and, um, you know, just recently, um, one of my daughters asked me, they said, well, so what compels you to do that? Right. You know, why it, it's a lot of work to learn new things. It's risky. It's scary, all that kind of stuff. Right. And, um, you know, I, what I, what I told them was that, um, one, I personally wanted to be a part of doing something good, you know, for the climate and computing, right. Um, that right. would help its long-term sustainability. Um, and then the other observation I made is that young people these days, right, again, back to the, the future belongs to the young, right, yeah. um, is that uh, I was starting to see students in my classes that um, were very socially motivated, very environmentally motivated, right? Mm -hmm. And I was looking at them thinking, you know, here I am just teaching them about technology as if technology were neutral with respect to the environment and with respect to the, the climate. And it's not, right? It's not even neutral it's a little bit negative or maybe a lot negative. Right. Right. So I wanted to actually um, work on something and create opportunities to get them excited and to get them to work on something that could be viewed as making computing more responsible, more positive uh, for the climate and the environment. And, and that's turned out to be the case. I mean, we have undergraduates and graduates who come to our group now specifically because they get excited about this and they're motivated about doing something for the environment and the climate. Uh, and I think that's terrific. You know, they shouldn't have to say, if I care about that, I'm not going to do computing, right? Yeah, that's fascinating and very 
gratifying to hear. I mean, it's just, uh, I'm quite excited by it because the younger generation, you know, has amazing potential. You know, these young people have the ability to really change things if they, if they become interested in it and focused on it. So. Yeah. And I think that we would all do well to do a little reverse mentoring ourselves and try to, try to learn, try to learn. I mean, instead of just having this pain that we typically hear, feel when we hear, you know, this radically different view of the world, ask yourself, well, why is that? Right. And is, is that a better way to look at the world? Right. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That's exactly right. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Andrew, and it's absolute pleasure to have you on the show. And well, it looks like we're going to be chatting about everything zero carbon in the coming weeks. So we'll see you soon. Thanks so much, John. Thanks, Philip. Thanks for listening. You can find more information on what you heard today in our show notes. To learn more about Saluna and our innovative projects, visit our website at saluna.io or you can visit our blog at Clean Integration on Medium. To join our growing community, connect with us on LinkedIn by searching for Saluna and following our corporate page. Or you can tag us on Twitter. We're at Saluna Power. If you enjoy this episode, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It helps us in the charts and others to find us. Thanks for listening to The Kingdom, a Saluna podcast. See you next time.